We're looking at the life of David, and honestly, this wasn't my idea. It was Dan Mike's idea. Um, I wanted to do Daniel or maybe Revelation, but when he said David, uh, this is besides Jesus, the favorite, my favorite character in the Bible. And uh, my thanks to Dan for how he's laid this whole series out. Um, today we are going to be in 1 Samuel 15 and 16, so turn in your Bibles there. And if you have a Bible like mine, that is on page 201. And you're going to find that this chapter is about Saul. Because to understand David fully, we, we have to understand Saul. And I first want to, um, well, let's just right now stand and, and, and read the text. 1 Samuel 15. Let's start at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel and there Saul has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. I love that. Saul has to get the first word in. When Samuel reached him, or, uh, but Samuel said, What is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, It was the soldiers. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They're the ones that spared the best sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord our God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop. Enough. Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you, Saul, king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I brought back Agag, their king. Their soldiers are the ones who took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the voice of the Lord to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. This is God's word. You can be seated. The biblical story now is introducing us to this concept of king. King. 
If you, if, you, if you read the Bible uh, chronologically, up until this time, uh, we've been in, introduced to prophets and priests and judges, but no king. There's just the promise of a king. Now, this concept of king for Americans is a bit interesting because we typically don't do king, we don't value king. As Americans, we are anti-king. It's how our whole country was started. Yet deep down, I'm going to make the argument that we all long for a king. Someone who can look at the world's mess, all the violence, all the injustice, all the junk, even our own lives, all the mess and junk there, and make it right. We long for this. In fact, this is how 1 Samuel, the book, begins. It begins with a woman named Hannah who's living this battered, barren life, made to feel completely worthless, and she calls out to God, and I want you to just hear uh, her prayer, how it ends. It says, the Lord Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Now to us, we hear the word judge or judgment, and that's a a negative connotation because when we think of judge or judgment, we think punishment. But to the ancients, judgment is salvation. It's restoration. So when Hannah is saying that God will judge the earth, she's saying God will restore it. God's going to make it all right. And in fact, uh, in her song before this, she describes what this look like, looks like. She says, she who was barren has borne seven children, and she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sits them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. That's God making everything right. And according to Hannah and her song, how is God going to do it? Well, she ends it with this. He will give strength to his king. And he will exalt the horn of his anointed, his Mashiach, his Messiah. In fact, Hannah is praying this at a time when there is no king, but just the promise of, of a king. And this is the, the setting of the book of 1 Samuel. It's this whole idea of God's people crying out to God. God, give us a king, a Messiah, someone who's anointed, who can rescue us and save us and make everything right. Now, what kind of king could do this? And how would he do it? And I know as Americans, we're skeptical that such a person exists. And yet, when I look at this election year, um, I I, I see more and more that people want a king. They want a pharaoh. They want a Caesar. They want a a, a fearer, someone who is going to step in and and, and make everything right. I, I, I think this is what Hollywood has tapped into, too, with all these movies about superheroes. It's the idea that there's a superhero who can come into our world and, 
and tease us with this idea that if the superhero is just the right person with just the right amount of power, that he can make everything right. We long for it. In God's book promises such a king. In fact, the whole story really is about a king, and we just finished Luke, where we saw God's true king. In fact, it's how God himself became that true king. But this part of the story is here to prepare us to think about this true king, to show us not only the king that we want, but more importantly, the king that we need and the kind of king that our world needs. And God's first choice is Saul. And Saul is the people's choice. Saul is Samuel's choice. Saul is the kind of king that reflects our wants and desires when we think about king. In fact, if you have your Bibles, just turn to 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. It's music to my ears to hear those pages turning. There was a Benjaminite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish. Now, a man of standing there in Hebrew is Gabor Chayel. Kish is a Gabor Chayel. Kish is Saul's dad. Gabor is the highest title that you can place on a man because what Gabor means is mighty man. This is one of the greats of their nation, a hero. Hael means he's a man of wealth, and you see that in the story. He has servants. He has many donkeys. Just to have one donkey in that day meant you were pretty wealthy. He has a whole herd of donkeys. Kish, this Benjaminite, this Gibor Hael, has a son named Saul. Look at the description of Saul in verse 2. Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites. What do you mean without equal? Was a head taller than any of the others. In fact, without equal, literally reads, he was the most beautiful, the most handsome, and the tallest. Let's make Saul king. And you know, the first story then that you read about Saul, you, you, you learn so much about him. His dad says to him, Saul, go, re- go retrieve all my lost donkeys. And, and what you find out is not only is Saul incompetent to be in charge of a bunch of jackasses, and really, that's how the Bible wants you to see it. But you see his incredible insecurity. Because the whole time he's wondering, do I do this? Do I do this? Do I go this way or this way? And he has a servant who's come along with him for the task. And the whole time he's depending and leaning on the servant. It's the servant leading him. He's insecure. And this is Saul. A great man, a stunningly beautiful man, an impressive man, a foot taller than all the Israelites. And yet on the inside, incredibly insecure. Saul becomes king, and and God gives him the task of wiping out the Amalekites. And and, and look at chapter 15, verse 3. I want you to see 
the nature of this assignment. These are texts that oftentimes we like to skip and, 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 and skirt around, but we can't. It's in the Bible. Saul, now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them, but put them to death. Men, women, children, and infants, cattle, and sheep, camels, and donkeys. Ah, oh. Really, God? Wipe it all out? Now, this is where we have to understand who are the Amalekites. Well, the Amalekites in the biblical story are the big bully on the block who are always preying on the weak. They're known to attack the little people, and then they unleash genocide on that little people, but they keep the strong so that they can sell the strong as, as slaves. They're the sex traffickers of that world. In fact, when God's people are first leaving Egypt, it's the Amalekites who come all the way down from the Negev, a hundred miles away, to destroy this vulnerable nation of slaves. And Deuteronomy 25 uh, describes, um, well, this is God's word later. He says, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. This is God speaking to his people when they're in their wilderness about ready to enter the promised land. Remember how they met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. They did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies and the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance to possess, that you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget them. That's what they did. They came in and hit them at the rear where all the old and the weak and the sick were, and they took it out. And Deuteronomy is a book where God is over and over again saying, I want you to, to remember. He says, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember our wedding day. I want you to remember how I led you these 40 years in the wilderness. I want you to remember how I've been faithful to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want you to remember the Sabbath. And then in Deuteronomy 25, he says, I want you to remember the Amalekites. Because God doesn't tolerate bullies. People who prey on the weak, who violently subjugate them, God says, blot them out because they do not fear my name. But see, even more than bullying a weak people group, the Jewish people have always interpreted Amalek to be the snake in Genesis 3. Because not only is Amalek a big bully, but they are essentially attacking God and they're trying to thwart his plan of redeeming the world. Which is why as recent as the 20th century, the Jews' code word for Hitler during World War II was Amalek, and their code word for Nazi was Amalekite. In fact, Netanyahu just referred to Iran as Amalek, and I think that just went over everybody's head. But if you know the Bible, he is making a pretty strong statement. The snake. Who's going to crush the head of the snake? Who does God say? In Genesis 3, verse 15, the Lord's anointed. 
And that's why Saul is given this mission. He is, he is the Lord's anointed, and God gives Saul the honor to fulfill Deuteronomy 25. And the problem with Saul here is that he wages war like an Amalekite. He destroys the weak and keeps the strong, including the king. In fact, if you know the biblical story well, you know that there's huge consequences for Saul's disobedience. Not only will it be an Amalekite who's going to later kill Saul, but centuries later, you have the book of Esther, which tells a story of a near holocaust of God's people, all through the scheming of this man named Haman, who comes up with this master plan to blot out every Jew from the face of the earth. And he gets so close, but in the end... The plot is foiled because of Esther. And you know the story, many of you. But who's Haman? This Hitler. Haman is an Agagite, an Amalekite. And who's Esther? Not only is she a Jew, but she is from the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Kish. So what the man Saul couldn't do, centuries later, the woman, Esther, from the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Kish, does. Now this is the story at a cosmic level, but I want to get personal this morning. I want to look at why did Saul fail? And verses 10 and 11, uh, let's just read those verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I'm grieved that I made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Well, that's the nature of his failure. Saul's failure is, is, is disobedience. Saul knows it. That's why when, when Samuel comes to him, uh, he has to be the first to speak. And in verse 13, the first thing he says is, I obeyed the Lord. When he knows he didn't obey the Lord. And, and, and Samuel interrupts him and says, enough. So let me tell you what God said to me last night. And look at verse 17. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you, Saul, king over Israel. I think this is the why Behind the what? The what being Saul's disobedience. We need to look at the sin underneath our sin. And as I studied Saul this week, the more I studied him, the more I felt sorry for him. Because Saul, from the very beginning, sees himself as small in his own eyes. Way down here. And yet now, he's anointed to be king. And what do you do when you're called to be way up here, but you know in reality you're way down here? What do you do with this gap? Between what people expect you to be between what God expects you to be 
and what you know yourself to be. What do you do with that? And see, I think Saul is already struggling uh, with this, being born into a family. He's got a dad who's, who's a, a national hero, a Gabor Hael, wealthy, successful, complicated by the fact that, that Saul is handsome and beautiful. And his whole life, he's probably heard people say, oh, Saul, look how good looking Saul is. Oh, Saul, look how impressive Saul is. And then all of a sudden, to make it even that much, the bar now is way up here. He's anointed king. What do you do with that gap? Now, I don't know all of you, but I know you well enough. I know people well enough, I know myself well enough to know that all of us in this room experience that gap. That gap of what we're called to be as pastor, for me, as parent, as husband, as coach, as a member of this community. I know the bar. And I also know me. That I'm way down here. And we all have, in, in, in some sorts, this gap. And I can tell you right now, David felt it. And essentially, in my mind, there are two ways to deal with this gap. You can either strive with all your might, muster all the resources you have to try to close the gap, or you can just accept that you're small. And little, and let God close the gap. See, this is the difference between pride and humility. This is the difference between Saul and David. David, we're going to see, has all kinds of deficiencies. David is going to fail miserably. Failures that are probably even greater than Saul's. But here's the deal with David David is secure in his insecurity. He is secure in being small. He's as secure in being uh, way down here. This doesn't devastate David. He's comfortable with that. He's comfortable being perceived as that. He's perfectly fine living a small, mundane life, whether he's shepherd over a nation or he's shepherd of a few sheep, because he's humble. But Saul, on the other hand, this gap, it just devastates him. It crushes him. Because he can't accept his smallness. Because he has a huge problem with pride. See, the most insecure people are always the most proud people. Pride and insecurity, they go hand in hand with each other. Because it takes a lot of pride when you know yourself to be down here, but you think through yourself you can be up here. It takes a lot of pride to say, I can fill that gap. I can fill that gap relationally. I can fill, fill that gap uh, spiritually. I can fill that gap professionally. I can fill that gap communally. In fact, it's pride that insists that our self will fill that gap. 
And Saul shows us all the symptoms of pride. Uh, First of all, look at verses 14 and 15. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this knowing of cattle that I hear, hear? And Saul answered, well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord our God. They did it. So proud people do. They blame. Saul's blaming his men for his deficiencies. He's blaming his men for his his disobedience. You know, proud people have to do this. They have to do this because they have to maintain this idea about themselves that they're up here because they can't accept the fact that they're down here. And so they blame. And do you know what a pathetic thing it is to blame others, parents, friends, Teachers, churches, for your failure. Some of you even blame God. Blaming only hurts the blamer. The second thing the proud person does is look at verse 12. I I, I never saw this until I studied this closely this week. But Samuel shows up to find Saul, and what's Saul doing? He's building a monument to himself. That's what proud people do. They, they are constantly promoting themselves. They're, they're, they're building monuments to themselves. Hey, everybody, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Do you see it? Because they have to prove not only to themselves, but they have to prove to everyone else, I'm not down here. I'm up here. Don't you see? Do you need to be seen? Do you need people to see your accomplishments? See, when self is the solution to the gap, you have to prove yourself. You you have to prove yourself not only to yourself, but you have to prove yourself to others. And you live your life then in this performance mode of always trying to perform and, and always trying to be better and ultimately the best. That's one of the worst bondages there is. And then look at verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 20 and 21. Again, he says to Samuel, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I brought back Agag, their king. Well, that's kind of an oxymoron. Um, the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, but the reason why is we, 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 we did it so that we could... Make sacrifices to God. Do you see what he's doing? He's hiding. Proud people hide. Do you see what he's hiding behind? Spirituality. Offering sacrifices in that day was their form of worship. In fact, if you look closely at Saul's life and Saul's reign, it's marked by extreme forms of spirituality. Fasting, ecstatic prophetic experiences, casting of lots, divinations, all these things are just cover-ups. They're attempts to deal with the fear and insecurity that he feels within. 
fact, one of the foremost scholars uh, on Saul, Robert Polzin, Polzin, writes this about, about Saul. He says, Saul's gradual descent into divination and extreme spirituality, his oaths to fasting, his frustrated efforts to inquire of the Lord, his casting of dice for God's direction, are all indications of Saul's manipulative effort to ensure the success of his life and kingship. He's dressing himself up with spiritual gimmicks in order to hide. And I'm telling you, this form of hiding comes with great consequences. Spiritual gimmickry of this sort doesn't remedy fear and worry and insecurity. It's like pouring fertilizer on it. By the end of Saul's life, his, his insecurity is going to be full-blown paranoia. And in the end, God isn't impressed. God cuts through all of it and says to obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience. What happened to the importance of obedience? Spirituality that is on the highest level to God is obedience. Shema, the heart of, 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 of what Jesus says it is to obey, he says, or, or to love God with everything you have. Shema literally means to hear, and to hear in Hebrew means to obey. Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to obey me. Sometime I'd love to just show up here and, and preach a sermon that had two words, obey God, and then just leave. <laughs> We've got to get back to obedience. It's better to obey than to sacrifice. And all these symptoms of blaming others and self-promotion and, and, and spiritual hiding are, are things Paul does, in my opinion, not because he's trying to deceive people, but because he is deceived. Paul has deceived himself, or Saul. Paul, Saul, my goodness. I've probably called him Paul so many times already, but you know what I'm talking about. See, self-deception is, is when we know, but we don't know, because we don't want to know. Jeremiah 17 says, the human heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Which is why David in Psalm 139 prays this prayer. Lord, search my heart, know me, and try me, and test me, and see if there's any offensive way in me. And see, the souls of the world, they fall into this self-deception because they have to believe at the end of the day that they're up here and not down here because they can't accept this. And the Bible essentially says to the proud, self-deceived person, and to quote Jack Nicholson, sorry, but you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. Now, how do the souls of the world get freedom from themselves? 
from this treadmill of performing and proving and always justifying, uh, freedom from worrying and fretting and, and, and not measuring up, free to just live lives in smallness and littleness and mistakes without it devastating them. And David really shows us how. David is a man who fully accepts his smallness and, and, and how to deal with it. And I, I really believe this. When I look at David, he, he could be shepherding a few sheep and that would be no better or worse than shepherding a whole nation. After this ordeal with Saul, God sends the prophet Samuel to Jesse's house. I love what uh, God says. He says, stop all this crying about Saul. It's time to move forward. And he says, I see, this is literally how it reads in the Hebrew, I see me a king in Jesse's house. So go to Jesse's house. Samuel then uh, gets the word out to Jesse and Jesse realizes that the great prophet Samuel is coming to his house and Jesse marches out his seven sons. I see this dad just swelling with pride as one by one they, they're, they're marched out. And even the great seer, as he's called in the text, Samuel, who wrongly saw with, saw with Saul, now all of a sudden sees Eliab, 